in the message translation, and so it'll sound a little different than you're probably familiar with it. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. You became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead. If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ, and face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors, and everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God, all those affidavits we passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications, if there's no resurrection. But we affirm and have been affirming for 2,000 years that there is a resurrection. For hundreds and hundreds of years, followers of Jesus have greeted one another on this morning with the same words, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And when we greet one another that way, we are affirming the experience of a handful of people who years ago saw Jesus die and whose experience led them to believe that Jesus defeated death. That he defeated death and he came into a new kind of life. And so, when we greet one another this way, we affirm that death does not have the power we think it does. We affirm that life triumphs over death. We believe that this is a special day today. We believe that this day represents a special moment in history. But like many things that we believe are special, sometimes the resurrection begin, can become so much a part of our story that it gets lost in the ordinariness of just making the proclamation of a tenet of our faith. We can become so much, so much a part of our religion narrative that we don't give it much thought. We state it, we signal the affirmation of our belief, but we don't think very deeply about it. And I'm going to suggest this morning that by reason of a lack of imagination that we might have reduced a wild idea, an unnatural and a riotous thing down to a tame, domesticated, even a slightly tedious statement of faith. That we might miss the breath-stopping shock that Jesus rendered death a moot point. When I was young and I heard the story of the resurrection, my thoughts were, naturally, quite childlike. If I engaged my imagination at all, which I probably didn't, I did so with very concrete and simple terms. I might have imagined it something like this. One moment Jesus is cold and dead and still, in a stone tomb. Then the next minute, he was alive, and he was warming up, and he was moving around. He was dead, and then he woke up from being dead. I never gave it much imagination beyond that. Tacitly down within me, if I had imagined what I thought it was like, it would be like waking up from a sleep, albeit a very deep sleep. If I'd thought about it at all, there would have been the flickering of eyes, maybe a little discombobulation like we feel when we wake up from a deep slumber, some unwrapping of the grave clothes. I guess <clears throat> I would have imagined Jesus standing up and then stretching 
and then maybe nodding to the angel to move the stone, and then the walking out. And that would have been about the extent of how my imagination would have gone over this seminal event that defines our Christian faith. Now, the limitations of my imagination are probably due to being so young when I first heard the story. If I had been older, I might have probed it more deeply, asked more questions. But again, I didn't put much thought into the resurrection. We'll wait. Pretty soon it'll go away. (laughs) No, it's not me this time, I promise. But in the last couple of years, I've talked to quite a few people who have real doubts about the Christian faith. And one of the things that they question is this unquestioned Sunday school version of telling the story of the resurrection. They have real questions about that. And so consequently, it has brought me to bring the force of my own imagination to bear upon this story Since there was nobody beside Jesus in the tomb to report what it was like, imagination is all we have because Jesus didn't say much about how things went there. So imagination is the only tool that we have to think through how things might have gone. So here's what I've come to think. I think this resurrection thing was a whole lot bigger than I had had it pictured. I've come to think of the resurrection as a singular, cataclysmic unlike any other event in human history. So unlike anything ever seen that the waking up paradigm just doesn't do it justice. That it's an event so different that it doesn't fit into our normal categories of reality. I no longer see the resurrection of Jesus as Jesus being sleeping and then being awake and then standing up and moving out. I believe that what happened in that dark tomb is completely unlike anything that we can relate to, comprehend, or understand. An entirely different kind of phenomenon. I thought about the way that people reported the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, and that's what they were. They were appearances, if you read through the story. Scripture tells us that after Easter, Jesus just started showing up places. He stopped walking places and he appeared places. He didn't sail on a boat to go places that he'd, like he'd done before. He was just at those places. He didn't borrow a donkey in order to get to town. He was just appeared in town. Jesus began simply appearing in the midst of people's lives while they were doing other stuff. And it was Jesus, but it was different. Jesus after the resurrection was something different than Jesus before the resurrection. Paul wrote a letter to the people who lived in a town of Galatia about 10 years before the earliest document that we have recording the life of Jesus. There was, Mark was the first gospel that was written, and before that there was a document called the Qumran document called Q, and all of the gospels draw from that. That's why there's similarities. They, they copied some of that straight in. And about the time that Q was written, or this Qumran document, Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians. So it was relatively recent after the time of Jesus' resurrection. And in that letter, he told the people that he had seen Jesus. 
but it's pretty clear from the context that it wasn't a seeing like I see you right now. It wasn't a flesh and blood kind of seeing. He said it this way. These are the words that he used. It pleased God to reveal Jesus in me. It pleased God to reveal Jesus in me. That's kind of vague. That doesn't, what does that mean? That's not like saying I can sit here and look at Bob. I see Bob. But in that letter and in all the other letters that Paul writes, he makes no distinction between his encounter with the risen Jesus and the disciples' encounter with the risen Jesus and the women's encounter with the risen Jesus. Which makes me suspect that their experiences of Jesus in the days immediately following the resurrection was a lot like Paul's experience. A little vaguer than I would like to have pinned it down with my concrete understanding. Jesus was present to them, but their experience was very different now. Mary didn't recognize him in the garden. That was different. Even dressed in someone else's clothes, she would have recognized Jesus, but things are different now. The disciples who walked on the road to Emmaus were spending a whole afternoon walking several miles with Jesus, engaged in a deep discussion with Jesus, sat across from the table with Jesus, and didn't recognize that it was Jesus until he was disappeared. It was Jesus, but it was different. Something was going on that we don't have the understanding of. Jesus didn't live with them as he had lived with them before. He simply came to them. He came in a series of strange yet moving experiences. But the outcome of these appearances, these experiences that they had together, was powerfully overwhelming in its impact on the disciples. In those appearances, they were transformed, whereas before they had been fearful, deserted followers of a leader. Now they had become a dynamic community of people that changed history. Something happened to them in these experiences that we don't understand of the risen Jesus. I don't think that what Mary experienced, what the disciples experienced, was merely an encounter with a body that had been resuscitated from the death. It wasn't a sit-up, stretch, walk-out-of-the-tomb kind of entity. No, I think that what they experienced was an encounter with something that is bigger than the categories of our reality can articulate. Jesus had been blowing their minds all along. He said, you think sick is sick? Watch this. You think water is only wet? Watch this. You think injustice and hatred are inevitable? Watch this. And you think that death is the end? Watch this. So I imagine the appearances of Jesus as completely extraordinary in human experience. Jesus exemplified a form of life that manifests itself very differently. A form of life that communicates the divine wherever it goes. A form of life that's not less physical, but it's more than physical. It can eat fish as any physical body can do. But this form of life is something different, something beyond mere physical, a form of life that could morph the physical world into a greater spiritual reality. So I don't think these 
people early on in our story had words to explain their experience. They were trying to talk about a mystery that was beyond expression. They were trying to describe an experience not having words to contain it. They were trying to tell a story that had burst unexpectedly into their lives, a story of mystery that was beyond the categories of anything that they could understand. Listen to Paul as he tries to grapple with language in order to describe this. He says, now when, when the perishable is clothed with the imperishable. When, when the mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written comes true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And I hear Paul trying to tease out a mystery that he can't comprehend. He said, this is, this is boundless, people. This is vast. We are tied up in this perishable reality, but this Jesus has burst into that reality and destroyed the categories we had for that reality. And now that we see that the reality that we have is not the final word, mortality is clothed in immortality. Jesus has awakened something that is beyond, something that is bigger than anything that we'd considered. And so they began to use a metaphor to talk about this experience. They said, well, you know, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like a seed that falls into the ground. And it looks like it's dead. It really does. But out of the seeming deadness of this seed, something new, something unexpected comes out. What is sown as a seed dies, and then it is born, reborn as a plant. Went in, perishable, came out, imperishable. Jesus was sown as a physical body, but raised as something else, something we'd not seen before. Now, this is awkward language. This is troubling language. And I'm imagining them trying to do their best to try and discuss what they had experienced, but being at a loss for words to do so. That's not all of the story they told us. It's not the whole mystery. It's not the whole thing. This wild thing that they saw happen to Jesus, this sowing something perishable and reaping something imperishable, this death of a mortal body only to reveal the life of an immortal one, they understood that that was only the beginning. It was the first time people had seen something like this happen, but their testimony to us was that it would be happening again and again and again and again, and again. Again, listen to what Paul says in his letter to the people who lived in Corinth. I'm telling you a mysterious new kind of reality that I've seen. The same thing that happened to Jesus happens to us. We will not just sleep when we die. We will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed our deadness will be raised into that same kind of imperishable reality Jesus' deadness was raised into. We too will be changed as Jesus is changed. Now the people who experienced this reality-altering event of Jesus' resurrection begin to talk in ways that had not been heard before. They begin to talk about the divine that is beyond time and us participating in and entering into that divine that is beyond time. 
The risen Christ became for them a foreshadowing of a whole new order of creation. Things are different. Things aren't limited to length and width and height and time. Things aren't limited to the four dimensions we can understand. There is something reality-breaking beyond that. Jesus knew spiritual body, spiritual expression, spiritual manifestation becomes an indicator that we can begin to anticipate and expect a holy resurrected universe, that the world is different before us. Like Jesus, we will take our last breath one day, and in relative terms, that day will be very soon. But when we do, our bodies will be sown into the ground. However, like Jesus, we will then be raised into some new kind of spiritual reality. The universe will sow our physical bodies and will raise our spiritual bodies. Now, I suspect that they had no idea what they were talking about. And I suspect that we don't either. Because this is beyond experience kind of talk. Faith kind of talk. Mystery kind of talk. But that's the kind of life that Jesus lived. And that's the foundation of our religion. First, Jesus did these reality-altering miracles. Then he shows up post-death in a transformed spiritual kind of existence. And I suspect they were trying their best to explain something they couldn't really explain. Jesus was this way kind of like us in a physical body, and then Jesus was that way, kind of not like us, but kind of like us, but somehow totally different. And seeing this thing that can't be seen and experiencing this thing that cannot be experienced, their eyes were open to some kind of divine purpose beyond anything that they had imagined. And they began to see their own reality, the length and width and height and time reality. They began to see that as illusion. And they begin to see this other thing as the truth. There is life beyond a broken soul. There is life beyond a broken body. There is a life beyond broken hope. There is a state of being that is divine connectedness. Divine existence is there beyond our current understanding. There is some kind of new spiritual physical. There is some kind of new real unreal There is some kind of new, unbeing state of being. And without words to explain it, they stumbled along trying to talk about this great and fantastic thing that they had experienced, something that had caused them to see a bigger purpose to life, something that came and began to energize them to go out and change the world, something that came to them and began to focus them to work toward divine purposes on the earth, to love people, to care for the poor, to stick up for those who had been beaten down by life, to revolutionize the known world with the good news of love and life and truth and the way, to turn the world upside down with the vision that they had seen, that this is not, they testified, all there is. This is not all there is, they proclaimed. There is more. We are not constrained to live in this limited reality. There is more. And so they went out with the love of God, and they went out with the forgiveness and the grace and the life and the goodness of God, and they did not fear for their own lives. And absent that fear, they related to the world differently, knowing that their future was an imperishable future. 
knowing that their bodies could be crucified or crushed or tortured or destroyed or fed to lions, theirs was an imperishable future, so they went out with the message of Jesus. The message of love, the message of hope, the message of grace and of goodness and of acceptance and of tolerance and of forgiveness. And they served people and they loved people and they cared for those who were being crushed by Roman aggression and they loved their enemies and they prayed for their persecutors and they laid a path that would later be followed by Gandhi and by Martin Luther King Jr. and by Mother Teresa and by countless saints through these thousands of years. And they transformed their generation and then they transformed history And then they got old. And then their bodies began to die. And having seen Jesus in the way that they saw Jesus, they were marked forever. And they were filled with an unquenchable hope, filled with an unquenchable trust. And they lay their heads down to die in peace. And they laid down their laurels of service to the poor. And they laid down their laurels of compassion and kindness and goodness. And they died in peace, confident that Jesus was the firstborn of many new physical, spiritual bodies. Confident that their being was secure, confident that the love of God was their inheritance, confident that love and joy and peace and goodness were theirs, their portion. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus had said. Believe me, you'll never die. And so with their last breath, for some on the gallows of Roman persecution, for others in the death throes of old age, their last breaths were filled with anticipation of a new horizon before them. Today, they thought as they died, I joined Jesus in a new reality. Now, these many years later, we have the same promise. We have the same story of hope. In fact, most of us have heard this story many, many times before. But even so, for many of us, there remains deep down in our souls a quiet pessimism about death. Unlike those who witnessed this resurrection event, maybe we really suspect that this length and width and height and time world is all there is. Maybe, unlike those who saw this resurrection event, we suspect that in the end, the box that they put us in is all that there is. Or perhaps we suspect that when we get there to this other dimension, it's not going to be as good as we thought it was going to be. Matter of fact, there might be some angry punishment awaiting us. So unlike those before us, if we consider our deathbeds at all, which we tend to avoid in our minds as much as we can, but if we do consider it, we quietly pray, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And then we, every one of us, we die. But I believe this story that I'm telling you today I believe that we too have a reality-blowing experience awaiting us. I believe that when we breathe our last breath, we experience something that's so 
astonishes us and so dazzles us and so dumbfounds us that like those who saw the firstborn of this new creation, we will not have the categories of consciousness to experience it. Paul, who seemed to have a better understanding of this kind of thing than most, even though he grappled with it himself, he said this, No eye can see and no ear can hear No mind can imagine the good and wonderful things that are prepared for us. One moment we are in this perishable reality, and the next moment we're in an imperishable reality. Every once in a while I imagine my own death. I imagine taking my own last breath. When I have this imagining, I often hope that I'm conscious when I do take my last breath. And when I get that imagining going on in my mind, and when my own fear is overcome by faith, I will often have a physiological experience. There will be a catch in my breath, a wisp of anticipation, maybe some butterflies as I anticipate the adventure that is before us. And this is our story as followers of Jesus. This is what we celebrate with hosts of followers of Jesus across the globe and across the centuries. This is what our story tells us awaits us, something beyond our current understanding of reality, that Jesus was just the firstborn and that you are next. That when you breathe your last, a new reality awaits you, something beyond your current level of consciousness, and whatever it is, it is good. And whatever it is, you are safe. And whatever it is, you are loved. Last year I read to you a story from a Lutheran minister in Seattle. His name's Edward Marquardt, and I want to read that same story to you again this year. He said, I will never forget my last conversation with my mom. She died not that long ago, and it's still tough. She told me she didn't want to die because she'd just purchased new blue carpet for the new apartment. She'd had the same beige carpet for 20 years in her old low-income apartment, and the carpet that had started beige had turned brown. They put brand-new blue carpet in her brand-new apartment. new apartment had a view of the cornfields of Minnesota. She said, I don't want to die. I really like the new carpet. I have a nice apartment and it has a view of the cornfields. And she died. Oh, poor mother, poor us. But mother woke up, and I bet she said, this is better than blue carpet. This is better than cornfields in Minnesota. I bet mom was astonished and astounded, amazed, and awestruck, dazzled and dumbfounded by the beauty that was beyond her imagination. Well, today we celebrate Easter. Today we celebrate something bigger than our experienced reality. 
Today we celebrate something mysterious and something unknown and something beyond us. We celebrate something that a handful of people saw a long time ago that they couldn't even explain then. Today we celebrate a hope of a reality that's not limited. We celebrate a love and joy and peace that are not limited. And we celebrate that we are safe. And from that position of safety, we can respond to the call of God given us in Jesus Because we are safe, we can take on the mission that's given us in Jesus. Because we are safe, we can go out and make the earth right. We can spend our lives in service of repairing that which has been broken. We can set right what is wrong. We can make loving what is unloving. We can bring peace to conflict. We can spend our lives bringing healing to woundedness. And bringing sufficiency to poverty. We can visit the sick and we can visit the dying and we can do so infused with hope. We can visit prisoners and bring acceptance and bring grace. And we can love our enemies and we can extend peace to those who mistreat us. We can do this because we are safe. Our story tells us that from this safe place we can follow Jesus. For he is risen. He's risen indeed. So Lord, I pray that you would awaken us to the hope that is resonant on this Easter day. That you would awaken us to the life and to the love that are in us, for your Spirit is always in us. And that you could awaken us to the mission that is before us. And that you can give us in that hope of the destiny that awaits us, of this spiritual, physical reality that is beyond us, that is good and is safe. You can awaken us to the mission that you assigned us while you walked this earth. Be that so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, please prepare your tithes and offerings. And for this morning's generosity chat, I'm going to tell you about a guy I bet you've never heard of. His name is Albert Pike. And Albert Pike was a shaper of the America that you and I live in. He was born in Massachusetts in 1809. And he lived in the north. And he lived in the south. And he lived in the east. And he lived in the west. He became a lawyer and he wrote about how we practice law and how we exercise justice in our nation. He became a journalist and an editor of a newspaper in Arkansas. And he talked about what was right and what was noble and what was good that shaped the American experience. He traveled the nation. He bought a newspaper and he lectured on ethics. He wrote poetry. He became a man of honor. He was a brigadier general in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He was the only Confederate officer to be honored with an outdoor statue in Washington, D.C. It's in the Judiciary Square. And he is one of the unknown people upon whose shoulders our nation's blessing so solidly rests. He's a good man. You should read up about him. He profoundly influenced the ethics and the law of our nation. And listen to what he says about generosity. What we have done for ourselves alone dies with us. What we have done for others and the world remains and is immortal. Again, what we have done for ourselves alone dies with us. What we have done for others and the world remains 
and is immortal. And on this Easter, when we talk about the mission that Jesus has given us and our foundation of safety to do it, I encourage you not to live our lives fearfully clutching after that which we need for ourselves, but to live generously, to live immortally, to care for and to serve and to love other people. And to always remember that where generosity abounds, the Spirit of God is palpable. So Lord, I pray your blessing upon these, your people, at the point of their offering, at the point of lives lived in service to the earth. I pray that blessing of open-handed, open-hearted generosity. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's Easter. We are doing as we do, telling our story and retelling our story and highlighting some other dimension of our story. We're talking about that which is beyond us, that which happened many years ago, which influences us today. What are you thinking about? What is God stirring up in your heart?